You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Jesus, a devotional study by Melva Perkis. Book 7, Chapter 3, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Jesus turned from the mountains of Judea towards Jerusalem. Apart from a few nights in adjacent Bethany, he would not leave the city again. The disciples watched him as he took the road towards the south. There was a kingly majesty in his bearing that checked their impulse to go beside him. They let him walk on ahead. A purposefulness about him amazed and frightened them. They dare not speak. Walking steadily behind the silent figure, sometimes losing sight of him on a bend in the road or over a shoulder of rock, They left him to his thoughts. But they found him waiting for them in some quiet place, sheltered from the burning sun. And when they were settled and refreshed, he opened his heart to them, unfolding the complete picture of the events that were transpire within a week in Jerusalem. When he had first spoken to them of these things, he had told them only that he must suffer many things and be killed, and rise again the third day. On the next occasion he had added the terrible truth of his betrayal, but now he revealed the whole picture. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and scourge him, and shall spit upon him, and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. The disciples listened, but did not understand. Confused between their conception of the Messiah and this awful picture of suffering and death, They could not find a perspective. The changed trend in the teaching of Jesus and the growing atmosphere of impending crisis had had its effect upon them. In spite of all that he was telling them, they persisted in entertaining hopes of immediate glory. But surely the beloved John would understand? No, not even John. The journey continued in silence. They met, possibly by arrangement, a company of pilgrims from Galilee. There was a happy reunion as James and John saw their mother again. 
news of the resurrection of Lazarus and the nearness of the Passover had apparently persuaded Salome that the time for the manifestation of the Messiah was imminent. It seems possible that, like Mary, she had lost her husband Zebedee, and with the unselfishness of a true mother, all that she now desired was the best that her master could give for her sons. Her interest did not displease James and John. Their growing intimacy with Jesus during the past months had its less pleasing side. It had been revealed by their high-handed rebuke of the one who cast out devils in their master's name, and their imperious request that they should be allowed to call fire down from heaven upon the inhospitable Samaritans. Now the mother and her two sons thought to settle for all time the vexed question of who should be the greatest in the coming kingdom. Jesus had spoken only a few hours before of the Son of Man sitting on the throne of his glory and of the exaltation of the apostles to twelve thrones. But this was not enough to satisfy them. The two disciples were hesitant to speak out. They had seen their master turn on Peter. They had already suffered a stern rebuke themselves. They could not be sure now what he would say. But Salome, with less knowledge of his spirit and with warm love towards her sons, approached him and, worshipping, made her request. Grant that these, my two sons, may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left, in thy kingdom. There is a footnote here. Mark represents the two disciples as asking the question. But in view of Matthew's more detailed record, there can be no doubt that Salome asked it with her son's full concurrence and active participation. So returning to the text, no time could have been less opportunity for this request. James and John had watched Jesus earlier in the day with fear in their hearts as he started towards Jerusalem. They had listened as he spoke of his impending sufferings. Even if they could not understand the purport of what he said, they should surely have seen the preoccupation of their Lord and been full of solicitude towards him as they pondered his words. Yet the petition for all its pride was wanting in neither faith nor loyalty. They had asked to share his glory. Did they realize that the glory lay in sacrifice? With loving patience, Jesus considered this joint request. He turned not to the mother, but to the disciples. Ye know not what ye ask. His mind contemplated the path of darkness and suffering that lay immediately before him. The deep waters which would pass over his soul, the conflict, the desolation of spirit, the way to the side of the King of Glory was the way of the Man of Sorrows. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They cannot truly know. 
They will be better able to answer when they have been through the experiences of the next few days. Then realising something of the fellowship of his sufferings, they may be able to answer, Not in our own strength, but with thine, O Lord. But now, encouraged rather than dejected by words which seem to offer them hope, their hearts prompt the answer, We are able. You shall. And it will indeed be the road to glory. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. It is hardly surprising that the other ten, having heard this conversation, were deeply upset. They were indignant with their brethren, not, it is to be feared, because they had ignored the feelings of their master, but because they had sought a privilege they themselves dearly wanted. Jesus called them to him and spoke to them of the true nature of apostleship. They must not seek exaltation for the purpose of domination. The principle upon which apostleship is based is not so. True greatness can only be found in humility, and serving one another is the only qualification for rulership. There is no other way. They must follow their Lord. He was taking that path. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. As they journeyed southwards, more and more pilgrims joined them. They neared Jericho. News of his coming went on before him. A few miles north of the Dead Sea and some fifteen miles northeast of Jerusalem, Jericho was a beautiful town. Over eight hundred feet below sea level, it was always hot. But luxurious plants, palms and flowers grew in its stately gardens. Herod the Great had spent money there lavishly. He had built its walls, flanked by four great towers and its amphitheatre. His son Archelaus had built its palace and laid out its rose gardens. Away across the salt waters of the Dead Sea, the hills of Moab made a purple background. It was a city of life and romance, colour and fragrance a centre for both priest and tax-gatherer, a busy market on the great highway from Egypt to Arabia and Damascus. The news spread that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Bethany was only twelve miles away. Everyone had heard of the raising of Lazarus and the decision of the Sanhedrin which followed. The Lord would have to pass through an avenue of eager, curious people. One of Jericho's richest citizens was anxious to see Jesus. Zacchaeus was the chief of the tax-gatherers for that region. Was it merely curiosity which brought him to see this friend of publicans and sinners? It seems more likely that he was rather a lonely man in spite of his money. The powerful priestly element would keep him out of the social life of the city. The common people despised and shunned him. 
Probably looking back on his life and the source of his wealth, he felt some sympathy with men's hostile attitude towards him. His conscience was at work. The more he heard of Jesus of Nazareth, and he had probably heard much, the more convinced he became that here was a man who would understand this estrangement of spirit and encourage these faint stirrings of contrition. But the road by which Jesus must come was crowded, and Zacchaeus was small of stature. He tried to push forward, but someone recognised him, and the word went quickly round. There were dark scowls, followed by angry cries, and he backed away. He heard the shouts which heralded the approach of Jesus. He must see him. Jesus was nearly level with him now, and the crowds were closing in behind. Something seemed to impel him. It had become imperative for him to see this rabbi. He broke into a run, keeping well ahead. A large sycamore tree spread its branches across the road. He saw in it the answer. Without hesitation, but not without effort, he climbed it until, astride one of its limbs, he was able to peer between the leaves at the road below. He could see Jesus now quite clearly, surrounded by his disciples, hemmed in by the seething crowds. Now he was below him. He had stopped. He was looking up into the tree. With a sense of unreality he heard his name. Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide in thy house. With a great joy in his heart, he scrambled back along the branch and down to the ground. He knew in his heart that a great change was about to come into his life. He who had seen Nathaniel under the fig tree had seen Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree. If with all our heart we shall truly seek him, we shall surely find him and be found of him. Christ can so easily be hidden by the crowds that press around him. The indifferent, the curious, the hostile, the patronising crowds. Our desire to see him and a sense of need must be great enough to lead us to climb into the sycamore tree. The urgent and imperative nature of Christ's words is full of meaning. He must make haste. Jesus was only passing through the city in a last journey. He must dine with him. It was the inevitable consummation for the sinner who had found the Saviour and the Saviour who had found the sinner. What transpired during those short, precious hours we do not know. But we know the result. Zacchaeus stood at the door as Jesus was about to leave, Behold, Lord, he vowed, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Claims would soon be coming in from the people who stood listening to this promise. But Jesus was satisfied that he would make it good. The unceremonious scrambling up the tree was not the only humble thing Zacchaeus had done that day. His Saviour left him with a parting blessing. 
this day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Book 7, Chapter 4 She hath done what she could. Those who witnessed the Lord's parting exchanges with Zacchaeus must have been intrigued by the attitude which Jesus adopted towards the man who, because he was chief of the publicans, was also in their eyes the chief of sinners. They were impressed by the transformation that had taken place and emphasised it as it was by a practical demonstration of goodwill which could not be gainsaid. Before he left, Jesus disillusioned the people's minds concerning the coming Passover. They knew that a crisis was imminent. Either Christ would manifest himself or the Jewish leaders would arrest him. To them it was simply a question of power, the conventional power of the Jews against the miraculous power of Jesus. Most of them had great hopes that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem to overcome the opposition and to establish the kingdom of God. He therefore told them the parable of the pounds, emphasising the need for the king to go into a far country to receive his kingdom and to return. He used the parable also to stress the obligations of the citizens of the kingdom during the king's absence, warning them by the picture of the man who wrapped his pound in a napkin against the dangers of indifference and neglect. The kingdom of God was not so easy a conquest as they believed. The king of Israel had not simply to march upon Jerusalem with the power he had already manifested overcome the religious and military obstacles, and bring in an era of national glory and prosperity. Nor were the subjects of the kingdom to enjoy so facile a victory. The king must go to Jerusalem to suffer and die before he could return from the far country to receive his inheritance. The subjects must earn their right to be children of that kingdom by good and faithful service to their absent king. As Jesus left the city, two blind men sat begging by the roadside. And here again is a footnote. Without more information, it seems almost impossible to solve the question of the blind men who were healed at Jericho. Several ingenious but unconvincing attempts at reconciliation have been made. For our purpose, we have mentioned only the healing of Bartimaeus and his blind companion as Jesus left Jericho. So continuing our reading, hearing the commotion around them, one of them, Bartimaeus by name, inquired who it was who passed that way. There can be little doubt that they had heard of Jesus and knew something of his healing power. Their voices rose above the noise of the tumult. Thou son of David, have mercy on us! 
So loudly and persistently did they cry that many in the crowd rebuked them. This only encouraged them to louder shouts. Jesus was going away from them, and with him would go forever their hope of sight. Their heart-rending cries rose more stridently. He must not go. He must hear and pause to help. Jesus stood still. He, whose ears were always sensitive to the cry of need, had doubtless heard their first urgent call. Why did he prolong their agony of doubt? For their own sakes? For those who stood by? It may be for disciples in the days to come, that realising the darkness of life without him, they might come to feel the urgency and fervour of these men at the walls of Jericho. Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. After what must have seemed an interminable suspense, their hoarse cries were silenced. Be of good cheer, rise, he calleth thee. With trembling hearts but lively faith the men got to their feet. Bartimaeus flung aside the garment which would hinder his progress, and they were led to Jesus. Lord, they said in response to his question, that our eyes may be opened. Compassionately Jesus touched them, and they received sight. Nor was their faith merely a passing cry of need. They used their new gift faithfully, glorifying God and following Jesus in the way. That Mark records the name and father of one of them suggests that he became a true disciple and was associated with the apostolic ministry. Jesus left Jericho and took the road westwards. Already the great pilgrimage to Jerusalem had begun, and every highway was crowded. The obvious intention of Christ to be at the Passover this year, in spite of the determination of the rulers to arrest him, created the utmost excitement and speculation. It was evident to all that the coming week was to be a momentous one, Many expected Jesus to throw off his cloak of lowliness and reveal himself in the glory of his messiahship. Bethany lay on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem, and here Jesus stayed. It was both a convenient headquarters, only half an hour's journey from the city, and a tranquil retreat where he could find comfort and peace from the bitter turmoil of the temple. There was hatred in Jerusalem, but warm friendliness in Bethany. He needed this last rest before the darkness engulfed him. It was necessary for him to spend these hours in the company of Lazarus, still quietly pondering the mystery of his great experience, of Martha supplying his needs now with a new understanding of the meaning of service, and of Mary, who said so little, but understood so much. We shall never know what Bethany meant to Jesus during those last six days of his earthly life. In common with all the villages within easy reach of Jerusalem, Bethany was filling quickly with worshippers. 
Many had come from afar. They had heard of the fame of Jesus. His exploits had been discussed by little groups of Jews as their boats ploughed through the sea towards the coast of Palestine. Travellers in caravans passing northeast to Damascus and southwest to Egypt told eager pilgrims of the latest events in Jerusalem. They spoke of the popularity of the prophet who accompanied his words with miraculous power. Bethany held a particular interest. Everyone was anxious to see the man who had lain dead in the tomb for four days. So great was the effect of this miracle that the chief priests were anxious to put Lazarus to death, and would doubtless have done so had they been able to contrive it secretly. It was Friday when Jesus reached Bethany. With sunset his last earthly Sabbath began. The long, hot journey, the incessant clamouring of the crowds, the miracles, above all the city to which he drew nearer with each mile, all these things combined to make the familiar home a haven of peace. After a refreshing sleep, Jesus would accompany the little family to the synagogue, and then, in response to an invitation, they went on to Simon's house to partake of the Sabbath feast. Simon was known as the leper. It was probably a title he chose to retain in grateful acknowledgement of his healing, for there can be little doubt that his cure was one of the hundreds of miracles unrecorded in the Gospels. We imagine Jesus reclining between Simon and Lazarus, two powerful witnesses of the glory of God and the authority of his Son. Martha, true to character, is serving at the table. Mary, holding a small box in her hand, is looking steadfastly at Jesus, indescribable love mingling with sadness and a sense of loss reflected in her face. Sitting at her master's feet, she had learned from his lips of his approaching death. In her heart, she knew it must be so. She could not attempt to draw him back from the coming ordeal as Peter had done. Realising that the end was near, and that the wonderful experiences she had enjoyed with him in her home would soon be but a memory. She was filled with unutterable sadness. Yet it was her love, not her sorrow, that triumphed, a love so deep and pure that it must find expression. She had come to bid her lord farewell. Quickly she came forward now, broke the box of spikenard, and poured it gently over her lord's head. Then kneeling, she emptied the ointment on his feet and wiped them with the long tresses of her hair. John, vividly remembering the occasion and understanding its beautiful significance, records that the house was filled with the odour of the ointment. Yet its fragrance was not discerned by some of those who were nearest to it. To Judas it was an unwelcome scent. He saw only a flagrant dissipation of wealth he could have put to better use. He kept the common purse, and he was a thief. 
but he veiled his disappointed treachery in fair garments, and in doing so, he deceived some of the disciples who had not the penetrating discernment of their Lord. Why? he asked. Was not this ointment sold for three hundred pence and given to the poor? There are many acts of homage that seem to have little practical value, yet they are fragrant, and Jesus understands the loving devotion from which they spring. Sometimes they are criticised because they are intangible, Occasionally, less worthy motives lie behind the depreciation. No one but Jesus had any right to assess the value of Mary's action. Judas, entering into his sacred intimacy, was guilty of gross sacrilege. It is a scene which can be reenacted and contains a lesson that we all must learn. It is fatally easy to pass harsh judgments upon tender expressions of love which we fail to understand. When Mary and Judas are together in the presence of Jesus, how great is the contrast! The one consumed with love, the other filled with hate. The one conscious of none but her Lord, the other of none but himself. Yet Jesus did not destroy the loveliness of the scene by exposing the hate and the selfishness he saw in the heart of Judas. It is not difficult to understand the feelings of Mary as she heard the harsh words of Iscariot and the murmurings of the disciples. It hurts deeply when our warmest impulses are subjected to cold scrutiny and judgment. She probably doubted now the wisdom of her action. Was Judas right? Should her love for her Lord have been expressed in ministry to the poor of the village? Looking at her troubled face, Jesus immediately justified her action. She had performed a noble and beautiful work, a work which revealed both her love and her faith. She had indeed ministered to the poor. It is one of the wonders of God's grace that though his son was rich, he became poor, that through his poverty men might attain eternal riches. With moving pathos Jesus explained the difference. The poor will remain to receive the succour of the rich, but me ye have not always. Only a few days now remain to him, in that she hath poured this ointment on my body, she did it for my burial. Mark adds the commendation of Jesus in the memorable words, she hath done what she could. Her Lord was going to his death, there was nothing she could or would do to prevent him from accomplishing his father's will. All that she could do was to show him the greatness of her faith and the depth of her love. It is all that men can do when faced with the wonder of God's grace in Jesus. Yet how few have earned this glowing tribute. 
when much else has been forgotten, the fragrance of that room in Simon's house lingers with us still. Wherever the page of the gospel is turned with reverent fingers, as a man contemplates the culminating sacrifice of the Saviour's dedicated life, Mary appears quietly on the scene, a picture of deep understanding and deeper love. At the very threshold of our Lord's suffering and death, as we are able to see the magnitude of his love and to realise what we owe to him, we are met by this woman, who by a tender act of loving devotion did what she could. And meeting her here, we are confronted by the challenge. What have I done? Have I done what I could? Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.